Hey, everybody. A little lightning in the middle of the REF service. I feel like that's good. Sets the tone. Um, I mean, I feel like you have to say words like smite, don't you, when there's lightning. Okay. Um, I always do that. Um, Let's stay firmly over here. My name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for this called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. We're a Christian campus ministry, uh, but let me tell you a little bit more about who we are. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the type A stressed and frazzled student right now, and for the type B chiller. Am I allowed to say that? (laughs) Probably not. Okay. I feel like I turned that card in a long time ago. Okay. And the introvert who feels, or I think it's for the introvert who feels uncomfortable sitting so close to someone right now, and for the extrovert who's practically in the other person's lap next to them. So, RF also exists for those who think that Christianity is always looking on the bad side of life. I mean, what's with all the sin talk? <laughs> Um, and then also, RUF is for those of, uh, of us who think that Christianity is looking at the bad side of life in order to look at the good side of life. That is, how else are we going to get some relief? In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks so much for coming. We're really glad you're here. Uh, we hope you feel welcomed. We hope you get to know RUF and RUF gets to know you. And RUF, by the way, is not just me. It's a bunch of students. Uh, it's you. Uh, so... Uh, especially if you're new or you brought someone new, thanks so much for taking the time. But part of the reason we have students come up here and do the readings or do the music or do the announcements is to kind of give you some bases about RUF and, and who we are. So feel free to ask them questions or ask me questions. So this semester, I we have the opportunity to march through Hebrews. Um, we're on chapter three. We're going pretty fast. Uh, you notice I just kind of skipped, like, I don't know, five verses in the middle there. Uh, my encouragement would be to read through it on your own, but let me tell you a little bit about the letter to the Hebrews um, as we kind of do it as much as we can in a semester. Hebrews is a letter of the New Testament that is written by an unknown author. We really don't know who it is. <laughs> we know he's an apostle or related to an apostle, um, but we do... Um, we don't really know the audience either. It could be Rome, the center of persecution. It could be Jerusalem, the center of Jewish temple worship. So, um, although we don't know the exact author or the exact location of the letter to the Hebrews, we do know one thing. We know exactly what the letter is about. And thematically, the letter is addressing a question that's age-old, 2,000 years old, but also extremely relevant to our situation tonight. And that question is... Why is life, in particular, why is the Christian life so hard? Why is life and why is the Christian life so hard? Look, I mean, if God loves us so much, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and solve the world's problems right now? Or more more personally, where is God when I need him? And why does Christianity sometimes feel like mostly cost and little to no benefit? Am I allowed to ask those questions as a pastor? Yes. Are you allowed to ask those questions? Yes. Okay. And in fact, the letter to the Hebrews encourages you to ask those questions. It's encouraging us with straight talk about God and straight talk to God, uh, in particular in the person of Jesus. So, um, 
I want you to understand that the title and the theme for what we're doing in Hebrews, what I think Hebrews is all about, is therefore struggling to believe. Struggling to believe. You see, tonight, God, through this unknown author, is coming alongside real people with lives that one day feel terrific and the next day feel horrific. You know, like lives like ours, people like us. And God is telling us, is telling these original Hebrews as well, something extremely counterintuitive and something extremely countercultural for that time and for this time as well. But with that teaser, we'll get into chapter 3, but why don't you pray with me and we'll get started. Father, um, thanks for this time together. Thanks for the opportunity to open up your word, um, to sit at your feet, to sit beneath you, um, to gaze up and wonder, to think about our lives, to think about you. This passage talks a lot about considering. It talks a lot about taking hold of you, Jesus, and I pray that you'd help us to do that now. Uh, That you'd lock and load our attention uh, onto this text, onto this moment, onto our hearts, how we're feeling right now. I pray that you wouldn't shove that aside. I pray that you'd bring that to the fore. And I pray that your word would speak to it. I pray that you'd speak in your gospel comfort, honesty, honesty, goodness, and beauty. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder, do you have someone or something in your life that regularly reminds you who you are? Do you have something or someone in your life that regularly reminds you who you are? I mean, is there someone who cuts through all of your posturing, right, and calls you out on stuff? Do you have that person? Maybe there's something you do that helps you remember who you are at home. That thing that you did when you were a little kid, and no matter how old you get, you still feel like a little kid. Or something like that. For me, I actually have a little kid. <laughs> I have a four-year-old version of me. A man-child named William. <laughs> and William innocently does things and says things that, well, are me. Okay? Uh, me beneath all the religious makeup... Me beneath the smoke and mirrors that sort of carefully craft my gift set to maximum efficacy. Blame is me. And let me give you an example of how this works. So, when William was around two years old, I took him and his twin sister Carol to get their first official haircut. Okay, this is a big deal. And I tell you why. Because as much as I and my wife try to explain what actually happens when you get your haircut, snipping scissors flying at your scalp and ears is a freaky thing. Okay? And so we did what every good parent does, and we set up an extreme reward system. <laughs> if you get this haircut with these sharp scissors, we will get you ice cream. No questions asked. We'll take you out to Baskin Robbins and get you a cone of ice cream which they were pretty pumped about. Now, the best part was that they had no idea what ice cream was. They had never had it before. And so there was some sort of combination of friends' mythology and our vague descriptions of it's kind of like cake but softer uh, that helped them along, but they got excited anyway. And so I took the twins to get this haircut, right? And I was by myself, um, and I think we had... Our youngest was a real small baby, and my wife, Tia, was with her. And so I had to distract one by, like, spinning her in the, in the chair, the barber's chair. And then the other, I watched the other, William, sit there stoically, his little lip trembling as locks of hair fell onto his chest. And he was just kind of curious about what was going on. Okay? Um, 
And so, then after this incredible ordeal, we took them to Baskin Robbins, William and Carol, and there's 31 flavors to choose from. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that when you have a little kid who's never had ice cream, what's the first flavor? I mean, do I go complicated rainbow? Do I go simple vanilla? I don't know. It was very complicated. But after I gave them, I ended up with cookies and cream and strawberry, and I gave William cookies and cream and, and Carol strawberry, I remember. And, you know, after a few hesitant licks, Carol really got the hang of it. Okay? My oldest girl, two years old, just went to town. Okay? Slurps, sucks, devours the entire thing in minutes. But William, my two-year-old self, went about this very different way. He did this really interesting thing. He would take a lick of ice cream, and then he would immediately play with his Thomas the Train furiously. Okay? He, and it kind of went on for a while. He'd lick a cookies and cream, and then he'd race Thomas around the cone. Over and over and over again, like a real pattern here. And at first this was amusing, but then it kind of got long, right? And so I got a little bit annoyed, and I was like, what is he doing? This is taking forever. But then I realized that this was a picture of how William and how I try to understand something new and amazing. Okay? How do we understand something new and amazing? We compare it to the best thing that we know. Right? The best thing that two-year-old William knew was Thomas the Train. There was nothing better. Okay? There was no prize possession. There's nothing he would scream in delight or, or fear over when, she, when he lost it. Thomas the Train was it in his two-year-old world. Okay? And William couldn't conceive of anything more pleasurable than Thomas. And so when ice cream came into his world and it tasted really good, the only way he could get it imagine what this was was to play with Thomas. That was kind of what was going on, okay? Um, and you see, what I, so like basically ice cream had to be a part of Thomas and Thomas had to be a part of ice cream. And I guess the kind of takeaway for this is his heart could not imagine an ultimate pleasure that did not involve trains, okay? And I realized in that Baskin-Robbins that day that my adult heart struggles the same way. And I'm guessing so does yours. I can't conceive of the ultimate thing, Jesus, without somehow mixing it or lowering it to a good thing. Name your thing. Name your pick your poison. Productivity, oh, they're all good. Efficiency, impact. I can't conceive of Jesus without mixing or lowering him to those things, or lowering him above the, below those things. I love the way that the theologian Soren Kierkegaard puts it. He says this problem, our problem of making good things into ultimate things is called sin. Making good things into ultimate things is called sin. Kierkegaard writes this, sin is building your identity on anything other than God. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. Kierkegaard is really just picking up a biblical idea here. No one in this world is born with a natural sense of self-identity. We acquire who we are. We acquire a sense of worth and value and purpose from other things like achievements and from other people like family and friends and professors. Here's the questions we're always asking at a heart level. What is it that I do that makes me feel adored? What is it that I do that makes me feel adored? Who makes me feel most loved? And how can I hang around them more? 
And so brick by brick, thought by thought, hour by hour, we build our sense of self upon these ordinary good pleasures. And they quickly go from being fun to being needful. From things that fill our days to gods we serve. The things that we wake up thinking about and the things that we lay our heads down and rest our bodies in. We see this extreme form, we see this in extreme form in addictions, but we also see this in the everyday um, reality of what makes us, what we repeatedly feel very strongly about. Think about it. What makes us most anxious? And why? What makes us feel guilty when we don't get it? What makes us feel fearful that we'll lose it? What makes us feel excited when we get it? Most excited. Okay? And this deceitfulness of sin, according to verse 13, is exactly what the Hebrew audience is struggling with in chapter 3. I have to unpack a lot of this. You don't see this, but it's, it's pretty clear. Like two-year-old William with Thomas the Train, right? Like me with recognition and success, the Hebrews have taken a good thing and made it into the ultimate thing. So much so that they cannot taste and see that Jesus is great. Moses and the laws, like the Ten Commandments, that he revealed at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament have become identity forming for the Hebrews. They become the most important thing in their world. They think that Moses' good advice and their own good behavior are ultimate. But Jesus and his loving rescue actually are both good and ultimate instead. Jesus is the only foundation that won't crumble under the weight of our needs, our desires, our dreams, and our imagination. And this is why Hebrews chapter 3 is a a pains to remind the Hebrews and to remind us tonight, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The apostle and the high priest of our confession. That is, this is my own language on what this passage is about, double take on Jesus. Do a double take on Jesus. And together, let's daily taste this goodness. This ultimate goodness. So do a double take on Jesus, and together, let's, do, let's, let's taste this together, this ultimate goodness in Jesus. Okay, so our passage tonight diagnoses the main problem and supplies both a singular and a plural solution. Okay, so first, and you can see this on your outline, your handout, verses 1 through 6, we see the problem. We're building our identities on good but not ultimate things. Second, in verses 1 through 6, we see the singular solution. Consider Jesus both as a good and ultimate thing. And third and finally, we see this at the end in verse 6, but then also in verses 12 through 14, that singular solution becomes plural. Exhort one another to the good and ultimate Jesus. Okay? So that's what we're looking at in that order. We're going to begin at the beginning with verses 1 and 6, which are a giant comparison. So if you need a mental image, think about William licking an ice cream cone and racing Thomas back and forth. Licking and then racing. That's what he's doing with Jesus and Moses. Back and forth, okay? So that's how you can think about it if you need that image. Or maybe that's just a sort of like, is Jesus ice cream? I'm confused. But anyway, okay? 
Hebrews' description of how we build our identities on good but not ultimate things is what we're going to talk about first. In verses 1 through 3, the author of Hebrews is making is speaking directly to his audience's desire to self-identify with Moses and his law-giving. In verses 2 and 3, the author goes so far as to say, hey, yes, yes, you're right. Jesus, I'm sorry, Moses was faithful. He's a good guy. But Jesus is also faithful. He's good. And Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. That is, he's ultimate. But why? Why is Jesus' faithfulness more glorious than Moses? In other words, why is Jesus better than a good, respectable, religious person and thing? Well, first, verse 3 tells us that Moses is not the builder of the house. The builder of the house of God. He's actually a part of the house of God. Okay, that's super confusing, right? What is he talking about? Okay, how we, why are we talking about houses? Like, I get it, Jesus is a carpenter. Um, you know, that's great. But until we actually read verse 6, and then we understand the context, we are God's house. So what he's saying here is Moses did not build us. He's one of us. Or in the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, you yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. And so Hebrews is saying this. Sure, Moses is a great guy who knew God. He did amazing stuff. But he's just like us. He's just a human being. And he's only another living stone in the house of God. Second, Hebrews, chapter, Hebrews verse 5 tells us why Moses is second best in glory and goodness to Jesus. And it says it this way in verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is a human servant, not the Son of God. Check, we talked about that just a little bit earlier. But here's the interesting thing. Notice that verse 5 references Moses as a prophet. Right? And his law, specifically the Ten Commandments, if you want to think of it that way, points to, testifies towards something greater. The things that were spoken to later. And if you've been reading along with us in Hebrews, chapter 1 and chapter 2 make this very clear, that the things spoken later are Jesus and his forgiveness and mercy. And so, what does that mean? Wow, so that was excellent. You just talked about the Old Testament. You wrapped this up. I feel my heart is solved. Okay, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me? At the very least, verses 1 through 6 tell us that religious, respectable goods like Moses or even law-keeping behavior, community service, global activism, good grades, good listening... These good things, whether they're explicitly religious or explicitly irreligious, are not good enough. They're not good enough. They're not ultimate. They're not God. They can't supply us with what we really want and what we really need because they were never meant to support who we are in this world. They're never supposed to support our identities. You see, most of us, most of the time, are giving our innermost hopes and confidence to the spiritual equivalent of a road sign pointing to some greater destination. I want you to think about this as a metaphor. I'm going there. I'm sorry. 
Okay? It's like saving up all of our money, spending hours of internet research, and days of travel only to hike to the road sign that says Grand Canyon, 60 miles. Right? And then to turn back around, go home, and call it a vacation. That's what's going on in our hearts, in our lives, in the Hebrews' lives. Okay? Think of it this way. Our spiritual problem is that we take our snapshots, we picnic there at the road sign for Jesus, instead of hiking and rafting our way down into the real relationship. A girlfriend. A pumpkin spice latte. A scholarship. A flickerball triumph. Even dad's ever-demanding satisfaction. All these things won't ultimately satisfy us. Okay? It's not that we don't pursue these things. It's not that we don't do them. We still are called to do good things. We're still called to go after good things. But we just don't let them define us. Okay? We're at, this passage is begging us not to let those good things, any good thing that you're thinking of right now, be the reason it's a good day versus a bad day. Okay? We can't let what everyone else thinks about us run the show of our lives. Otherwise, the pleasure of looking like a model will enslave us to food and the gym. Just to give you an example. But why are these good things not enough, right? So, okay, Sid, you're talking about the Bible, but like, really, why can't we build our lives on pursuing something good, like money or respect or intelligence? I see plenty of people do that. Okay? Well, according to Malcolm Gladwell, who I go to when I'm in trouble, um, it's because we're operating in a U-shaped world. Okay? We're operating in a U-shaped world. Using research from psychologists Barry Schwartz and Adam Grant, Gladwell points out that, quote, there's no such thing as an unmitigated good. All positive traits, all states, all experiences have costs that at any high level may begin to outweigh the benefits. What does that mean? That sounds like very economic, right? There's nothing good that doesn't become bad if you do too much of it. Okay, That's what he's saying. When we demand too much of it or we demand too much from it, anything good becomes bad. So when we plot the amount on the x-axis, I'm going to get there, I'm going there, and the benefit on the y-axis, we think, boom, 45-degree angle, success. It's upward and upward and onward. And the reality is, in this world, it's an inverted or upside-down U. Okay? What does that mean? Small quantities get better for us. But then it flatlines in middle-sized quantities, and then it gets worse as the quantities get larger. Increasing anything good starts out good, becomes neutral, and ends up bad. That's the that's research. Let me give you an example, because I think that's still pretty vague. We're, we're, I'm talking about broken line graphs. I'm, I'm out of my element. <laughs> okay. Extensive research proves more money stops making us happier at a family income level of $75,000. They, they pulled this all over the world and particularly the United States, okay? You see, it does not make us happier to make more money. It doesn't, it doesn't first, okay? It does when you sort of get your first raise. When you go from 50000 that'd be a great starting job, to $55,000, okay? You're going to be happier. 
but that only lasts until a certain point. Once you hit $75,000, a raise is a sort of a blah. And then you get to a certain point where a raise actually decreases your happiness. Because you think, oh, that's another excuse to buy the boat. Maybe I should get that addition. Maybe I have to keep up with the so-and-so now. And so the same trend goes for any other number of examples, if you don't believe me. Reducing classroom size has a great effect until it gets so small, it's just you and the teacher. <laughs> have you done an independent study? Okay, I have. All right. Okay, drinking red wine for health. Oh, that's awesome. Until you drink too much of it. <laughs> and then it becomes poison. Okay, so really novelist Lawrence Durrell puts it beautifully. He says it this way. He's, he's observed life. He's looked, he's, he, didn't, he did his own research. Okay? Anything pressed too far becomes sin. Anything pressed too far becomes sin. Okay? So maybe we should all try to live this life of moderation. Aristotle's right after all. Maybe we should just take sips and not chug the good things that we like. Is that the solution? Well, that might be possible if our heart was capable of not chugging. If, our, our, if we were not trying to acquire identity through good things, then we could sip. But we can't. You see, in the words of another author, John Updike, we each have a continued need to be loved. A continued need to be glamorous, to be beautiful. And like every addiction, a good thing, a professor's admiration, a friend we can finally tell our secrets to, busyness, even work ethic, all these good things are basically disruptive because they demand more and more and more of our time, our energy, ourselves. So we need to be honest enough in this moment, right here, right now, to ask ourselves a few good <coughs> questions. What do I wake up for? What do I wake up for? What do I look forward to most, most days? What usually makes or breaks my day? What do I rest in? What puts me to sleep and at ease when I go to bed at night? That usually very good thing used in that way is secretly, even deceitfully, breaking our very bones. And it's breaking the bones of innocent bystanders around us. It's not the thing itself, it's the way we use it. I think we think sin's going to come in on a Harley, right? Dressed in leather with, with devil tattoos. Oh, it's so obvious. Okay? But it's deceitful. That's what the passage is talking about, right? Okay. But our passage tonight is telling us for every hard question that we ask ourselves, we need to look ten times at Jesus. For every one question we ask ourselves about what we're living for, we need to look ten times at someone who lived for us. We need, to, we need to, and we actually get to consider, to fix our eyes upon, to observe with care, to think carefully about Jesus and his faithfulness over us. Our sin needs what that theologian Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. They could really write back then. Okay? 
And that's, of course, the second point of our handout. What's that singular solution that we're looking at, considering Jesus? You see, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is counted more worthy of more glory. Right? He's worthy of more glory, more glory than Moses or any Moses-type thing in our lives. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate thing. Verses 3 and 4 tell us Jesus isn't just another thing or another person in this upside-down, U-shaped world. Right? Jesus is God himself. He's the builder of all things. He made everything that is, including us, and according to the first chapter of Genesis, he made everything that is, including us, good. He's the reason for goodness. Have you thought about that? The good things we find ourselves serving are good because of Jesus. They're good because they testify, because they point to Jesus' ultimate goodness. Therefore, because Jesus is God, you can never have too much of him in life. Increasingly trusting our dreams and our needs to Jesus actually does result in a 45 degree upward curve on that chart that I drew earlier with my hands. (laughs) Certainly not all at once, okay? But over time, in fits and starts, Jesus proves the firm foundation for the sense of who we are. In other words, turning our bone-crushing desire to be loved and to be adored to what Jesus says about us starts out good, doesn't become neutral, and ends up even better. Jesus' words, just think about these words, what he's saying over you right now if you believe in him. You're forgiven. You're lovely. You're important. Not for what you do, not for what you look like, but because you're mine. Those words pile more deeply and more thickly onto our grasping hearts than we can even imagine. Verses 1 through 6 further tell us that Jesus is the Son who is over his people. He is over us as the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession. This just means that Jesus bridges the gap that we all feel between God and ourselves. Jesus is God to us. That is, he became a man, he dwelt among us, and he still has these open wounds. In his hands and his feet and in his side, at the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus is to us God. He stands before God and he pleads our case. Forgive him, oh forgive him, his wounds cry. Don't let that ransom sinner die. These still tender bleeding wounds are our forgiveness. And this is the difference between Jesus, who's good and ultimate, and Moses and anything else and everything else that's just good. Okay? Western religion worships right doing. Eastern religion worships right thinking. Neither can give us mercy. We need to live, we need the mercy, we need this mercy to live with each other and live in this world. I mean, what happens when we mess up and we hurt someone and we know it? What do you do about that? Do you hide it? Do you pretend like it didn't happen? Do you say, my bad? Where does the forgiveness to move forward come from? if not from Jesus taking on our hurts on the cross and getting wounded for it. 
Do we see that God who made everything has declared once and for all, for all time, that you are perfectly right with the universe and Jesus? Perfectly right with the universe. In Jesus, we can be perfectly loved by the one who hears all the confessions we're too afraid to even whisper. Yet how do we consider Jesus, right? Yes, we pray. Yes, we read the Bible. Those are both important. But verses 12 through 14 are pushing us to suggest something else. And it's counterintuitive, but maybe the culture's catching up. Community. Community. Okay? I hope it's obvious by now how easy it is to fall victim again and again to building our identities on something other than Jesus. Okay? That's kind of what the point of the sermon's been, point of this passage is. But verses 12 through 14 suggest another remedy, really actually kind of more like a concrete way to consider Jesus. And it's both counterintuitive and countercultural, I think. Look, at Davidson, it often feels like there's no personal space, doesn't it? I mean, when I went here, it was 1600. It's getting to 2000. And they haven't changed the building sizes. <laughs> okay? It was small then, it's smaller now. Just, I mean, just kind of go through your day for a second with me, okay? Uh, you have a roommate, most of you. You have people who drop by because you, unlo- you leave your door unlocked because you have an honor code. Okay? They drop by unannounced oftentimes and they hang out in your room till however long they want to and sometimes it's your roommate's friends and that's really annoying. Okay? Your classes are small so you're always called on. You just thank God for a lecturer every once in a while. Okay? And space is scarce. Study space is scarce. You're fighting over carols. Tooth and nail, elbowing people. I'm sure, that's not exactly how it works. More passive aggressive, I'm sure. But the last thing we need, think we need to consider Jesus in all of his ultimacy is someone else. We think we don't need someone else to help us consider Jesus. I think most of us have condensed everything I've said tonight into Sid wants me to have more quiet times. Okay? And that's not what this passage is saying. Of course it's important. That's one way you draw closer to God, but it's not the only way. And that's because, maybe it's Davidson, but I think it's probably more Western individual society. We think we get closer to God by drawing away from people. We think we get closer to God by drawing away from people. And sure, that's true. There's a place for a retreat and silence and meditation. But it's also equally true we get closer to God by actually getting closer to people. By living in the kind of community that exhorts one another. Right? Literally, this word exhort, I'm just gonna, I have to go into it. In the original Greek, means walking along some, somebody daily and repeatedly calling out to them Hey! Hey, you! Listen! I have something you need to hear. That's what's going on. Okay? And we're, and we're called, we're to call out these things about Jesus and these things about ourselves to others. Okay? Things that just don't comfort the challenges. These aren't just affirmations. Oftentimes these are challenging the comfortable. They're hard truths that set us free. What would it look like to know people well enough to ask them about what they're building their lives on? And then, what would it look like to show them Jesus right there? In that place. And say, he loves you that much. He's spoken into that crevice of your soul and it's finished. That's community. But look, all of this can seem pretty abstract, and I feel like I have to end with an illustration. So what is this exhorting us to? What does sharing in Christ mean exactly in verse 14? 
I'd like to go to the internet to solve my problems and also to another dessert illustration. <laughs> okay, that's why we have that clever title. Okay, so this summer, I don't know if you saw this, it's got like 4 million hits, so I'm sure you've seen this YouTube video. Uh, it, went, it went viral via Facebook and other social media that older people like I use. Um, but it's this incredible, it's a foreign language, which makes no sense why it would go viral. But it's this European man and a camera crew who go to this remote farming community in the Ivory Coast. Have you seen this? Maybe not. The television. <laughs> Bear with me. I was like hoping for some nods. It's okay. The television host, okay, interviews a poor African farmer. His name is Alphonse. And he grows cocoa for a living, cocoa beans. But he's never actually tasted chocolate before. Okay? It costs almost a whole day's wage to buy a, a, a bar of chocolate. And he lives way far away from the city where it's sold. In fact, Alphonse doesn't even know what his cocoa beans are used for. He just sells them to some middleman. They sell them to the West and to Europe, okay? He and his friends actually think it's sold for wine, which I think is amazing. But maybe some sort of micro niche thing. But look, the, the TV host gives Alphonse, the cocoa farmer, a taste of what his cocoa beans are primarily used for. He gives them a square of chocolate. And it's like one of these amazing scenes, right? This guy's never... He's been growing cocoa his entire life, and he's never, ever tasted chocolate. The primary thing that cocoa beans are used for. Right? And so he's skeptical. He tries a very small piece. He pops another one, and his eyes light up, and he goes, this is yummy. <laughs> Delicious. And like a translation, right? So it sounds much more eloquent. Um, then Alphonse gets, he gets up, and he gets on his motorcycle, and he makes the TV host get in the back, and he drives to his friends. Okay, and he gets his family together, and he gets all the laborers together, and he passes out the chocolate bar. And they run out, and they're like, we've got to keep the wrapper for the kids. And then, he, then the host pulls out another, another chocolate bar, and everyone just like rejoices. It breaks out like a spontaneous <laughs> cocoa farmer party. Right? It's like this amazing scene. Okay? And like, they're interrupting these people who are harvesting cocoa beans, right? They're drying them. They're doing the whole thing. And they, the, all the friends... Slow, kind of like sniff and like feel the cocoa wrapper. And they're sort of like they're asking all these questions like, what is this for? Is this why white people are so healthy? You know, like they, they do ask that question. And so, um, and then all of a sudden they have the same reaction when they taste the chocolate. So sweet. Their eyes lit up. They smile. It's amazing. It's a revelation, right? Although they grow cocoa beans for a living, they've never actually tasted what cocoa beans are for. Okay? And I love it. So the last, the very last scene is one of the workers, he's the oldest guy, he's kind of the, the mouthy one of the group, okay, turns to the camera and says this. He says, we complain because growing cocoa is hard work. Now we enjoy the results. What a privilege to taste it. And then he turns to his co-laborers, the younger guys around him, and he shouts, continue hard workers. Like, it's become this, like, rallying point of going back and harvesting cocoa when everyone was discouraged and sluggish. I think many times, most of us feel like these overworked, underpaid cocoa farmers. Going to church, attending ministry meetings like this one, following, with, following up with people we kind of like because we think we have to, doing ministry, quote-unquote, whatever that means. And all of this can feel like hard work. 
But Hebrews chapter 3 is telling us we need to taste the gospel chocolate that this hard work produces. Look, sometimes people grow up in the church, right, and they fall away. You see this in Davidson all the time. They don't hold their original confidence. Why? Because they've never tasted the chocolate behind the cocoa bean production. They have not seen the Jesus behind the rituals. They have not, by faith, tasted the sweetness of his personal and ongoing rescue of them. Others of us, new and old to Christianity, we need to taste and see that Jesus is good. We need it to be fed to us by other people. By expectation, we need Alphonse to come to us and feed us squares of chocolate. Okay? By preaching to us weekly and daily talking to us about sin and grace. And how great Jesus is. So that we want to go out and feed other people bits and squares of what we call the gospel. Friends, family, classmates. Because really, G.K. Chesterton summarized this all 100 years ago. He said, true religion, true religion is always trying to make men see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. True religion is always trying to make others, trying to make ourselves see, smell, handle, hear, and devour the truth. So when you're tired of this, when you're tired of the Bible, when you're tired of that person that slightly annoys you and you feel like you can't but smile at them, I want you to think about what this produces. And I think we're all going to say, work harder, fellow laborers, because it's so beautiful what the gospel is producing in our midst. But we need to stop and feed it to each other. We need to stop and taste it. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks so much uh, for this truth. And I I pray that we'd savor it. And I, I confess... I have to use a metaphor because it's hard to know exactly what that looks like. I mean, what does it mean to build your life on Jesus? What does it mean to taste and see that Jesus is good? I think it starts with believing what he says about us. I think it starts with believing the truth and not the lies today. That he's smiling no matter what we do. That he's in love with us, not for what we give him. And I pray that that news would break out like a chocolate party at Cocoa Farmers Convention at Davidson College. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.